I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the media, the public, the politicians, the question is the same. With all the government support during the pandemic, where is all that money coming from and how long is it going to take to pay back? Well, we'll remind ourselves today about modern monetary theory and the principle that money doesn't have to be paid back. But when so much new money has been created, isn't there a danger that there is an imbalance? And is that part of the reason we are seeing inflation starting to get out of control? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Well, there's the uh, the eternal question whenever the government has to step in with a lot of assistance, like, you know, for example, when there's a pandemic on, for example, the question is often asked, where's all the money coming from? Well, uh, you'll know if you're a regular listener to this podcast that money is fundamentally created in, in two ways. So we won't dwell on this uh, too long today because we've discussed it so many times. But just a quick pricey, uh, Steve, step in if I get this wrong, but I think I've got it right. First of all, it comes from commercial bank loans. They put money into your account that didn't exist before you asked for that loan. And they just need to make sure that they've got enough reserves to cover any of those interbank settlements that happen as uh, as you spend that money with with companies or or people who use a, another bank. So that's number one. Then there's government spending. They spend money. They issue bonds, which are bought first off by commercial banks. They switch cash reserves for those bonds. So the government has the cash, which it can then spend. So that's new money as well. So Steve, I guess during the pandemic. We've probably seen quite a bit of both of those, which is why we're seeing the the money supply increase so much. And it has. It's skyrocketed over the last year and a half. Yeah. In in, in the case of both of them with reserves, um, banks used to have 30 days to do that settlement, by the way. So banks could actually run their reserves down, not have sufficient reserves. In fact, have negative reserves. Uh, And then Mm. uh, over a given one month, to get them back to the stage where they were positive. And normally they'd borrow those reserves from another bank because if you have an interbank transfer, then the reserves go from the lending bank to to the bank where the uh, the the, uh, borrower puts their puts their money of course that was back before computers you know it took 30 days back then now of course with computers it takes 45 days so they're even <laughs> longer uh, to get their books settled and the case of government bonds i mean i, I know some uh, monetary reformers make a song and dance about the government needing according to legislation to sell bonds ahead of actual spending mm. uh, but the amount of excess reserves that have been created by the uh, by the government over time mean that uh Given given bonds being sold, you know, sort of monthly auctions are quite common. Of that sort of frequency is quite common. Uh, there's enough existing reserves in the, to enable the, the first tranche to be easily covered, and then with later tranches, the deficit itself creates both the reserves that are used to buy the bonds and the money in people's accounts. So there's no effective constraint uh, coming from reserves on lending of either either banks or or uh, money creation by the government. Right. But in normal times, the Bank of England says most of the money in the economy is created by banks when they provide loans. So that must be more of the money supply than coming from uh, overspending governments. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But if, yeah. but if if that's the case, I mean, that money 
does have to be paid back eventually. Of course, when it gets paid back, the loan gets paid back. There'll be someone else taking out another loan. But the fact that the money supply keeps on increasing must mean, you know, unless banks are offering ever greater loans, the supply won't expand. So, for, And we need the supply to expand because if we've got inflation – which obviously is, uh, you know, a part and parcel of the, you know, of the survival of the, mon- of the monetary system. If we want the money to supply, supply to expand, we need banks to give more and more loans for that expansion to happen. Yeah, I that's mean, a problem. System, in, in, in monetary terms, the system won't expand unless banks lend more than they get back in repayments, or unless governments run a deficit. And uh, this mm. is, uh, I've actually just refereed a, a fairly very good paper, actually, uh, where the uh, a statistician was taking a look at um, where does the uh, uh, demand come, how to how to model the demand. It's actually a, ma- a mathematician uh, looking at how to model demand in the economy, and said a lot of mainstream, of non-mainstream models have what they say, the idea of autonomous spending. And when I looked at his classifications, autonomous spending, it was all things financed either by credit or by governments running a deficit. And when you think about it, it then says to actually get a measurable increase in the GDP of an economy measured in, in dollars per year. Uh, the fundamental way that is done by is increasing the number of dollars. And the way that numbers of dollars increase by banks lending more than they get back in repayments or by government spending more than they get back in taxation. But I mean, that means if it's, if it's, the, if it, it, it's, if it's people getting loans, then it's, yeah. it's debt, isn't it? It's, it's people running up debt. And debt is really just bringing spending forward. I get a loan, I spend it. Uh, then I spend years cutting back on my spending as I try and pay back that loan. Uh, but so ultimately, how much I spend is determined how much uh, money I earn, of course. So you know, I can't I can't spend more than I earn, but I can bring a bit forward by getting that, by getting a loan. So there's a, that, that, that that's a limit, then, isn't it, well, on no, how no, much no, obviously well, is lent out in the but end? What you see is people spend predominantly on based on the amount of money they've got. Yeah. And if you have an increase in the money and an increase in debt, that's sustainable so long as the turnover of money. Uh, enables you to make enough of a of a of a gain from your uh, uh, economic activity sure. to finance the interest costs on the borrowing, and and that you know the, the fundamental story is cred- both credit and net government uh, deficits are sources of, of additions to aggregate demand, and and the multiplier the, would mean that you know you'd hope that that extra money therefore would you know create the multiplier effect people would, would turn it over faster because you'd yeah. be creating you'd be putting it to productive use. But that's not really happening, is it? I mean, the, the more we're seeing the money supply expand, the more we're seeing uh, this debt being issued, whether it's to individuals or to the government, we, we seem to be seeing the, uh, the the velocity of money slowing down. Well, this, 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 this is largely because, of, first of all, the increasing level of debt itself uh, reduces the income of the, of the poor. This is, this is something that comes out of my complex systems modelling of uh, Minsky's financial instability hypothesis. And that shows that there's a direct relationship, an increase in the level of debt and a fall in the share going to, to, to workers. And there's a, there's a complicated dynamic behind it, but it's, it is quite easy to understand what actually is going on there. But what that means is, even though the additional money borrowed into the economy in the models that I build and to some extent in the real world enables a high level of turnover of the economy itself, uh, it ends up pushing the, the wealth towards the bankers away from the workers. And the bankers, by definition, uh, are much wealthier than the workers and therefore spend more slowly. So you you also get a double whammy that the velocity of circulation Well, let's, 
And that yeah. is... And yeah. let's be honest. I mean, if a bank this, is giving a loan to somebody uh, and it's somebody who's on Struggle Street on a on a minimum wage, they're probably not going to give it to them. If somebody else comes along and says, hey, yeah, I need this money to oh, buy a house, uh, there's there's yeah. an asset that you can, uh, you can attach the loan to or I'm going to use it to buy shares. I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, in in both those cases, non non productive uses of money, but the money is being created. We're seeing the money supply expand. Yeah, and and and, that, and that's the danger that we've got. So that's over and above the, the the sort of generic tendency I was talking about earlier. But that means we have a tendency for the level of debt to rise, and that increasing level of debt to be associated with a fall in the circulation rate of circulation of money. Uh, so that you end up being caught in a, in a double whammy. You end up with a huge amount of debt, and then people who borrow themselves individually decide to spend more slowly uh, because that's the way they try to accumulate some of that additional money in their own accounts so that they can pay their level of debt down. And you get a, a tendency, you know, this just slows the whole economy down. And that's what we've been seeing, really. You look at the empirical data, this has been happening since the 1960s. There's been, a, even though the, the rate of turnover of money itself, Increased up to the peak of the inflation rate uh, in the the, the prelude to the Vokler uh, recession uh, in the early 1980s. Uh, even though that velocity rose across that period of time, the rate of economic growth was slowing right from 1960 forward. So the combination of the two, when you get into a lower inflation environment, which which is where we found ourselves until just recently, uh, is just a plunge in how fast money turns up. And that ends up with you being in a stagnant economy. So to what extent do central banks look at this? Because they <laughs> they obviously think... Pardon me? That- what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, supposedly they should be. I think it's their job, isn't it? But the, oh, look, I, I mean, they you, think you, money. You, I, can talk, I can talk out of school these days. Guy DeBell, who was, uh, was deputy director of the Federal Res- of the Reserve Bank of Australia. I'll be, yeah, I'll be eight. In a yeah. conversation with me, um, um, the, the conference in Adelaide about 14 or 13 years ago, uh, said, said to me, and I quote, I don't know why you worry about the debt to GDP ratio because you're comparing a stock to a flow. Right, which we've talked about before, yeah, in a recent podcast, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I'm being... Yeah. That, that is just that shows a complete lack of awareness of the variations we're talking about here and of course the validity of comparing a stock to a flow when you're trying to work out uh, the time constant as to how often the stock turns over uh, and, and and that and, and that therefore if you get that sort of thing from a deputy governor of a reserve bank and I also recommend you take a look at the ECB's uh, uh, a speech by a recent uh, ECB speech where uh, uh, Peter Pratt, I think it was called. I call him Peter Prattle for short. Peter Prattle was asked to explain how money is created and made a complete stuff of it. Uh, and, and those are people who run central banks. So, yes, this is a case where the, the, the ideology they have, that what they think is economic theory, uh, means that they collect the data and don't know how to interpret it. Well, for it. those who don't really understand how they're supposed to work, I mean, for, for monetary policy, I mean, they do believe it can control everything, don't they? Because they think if you control interest rates, that's going to control how much people borrow, and that will determine how they control the money supply, how the how the bank controls the money supply. Very straightforward. And until you look and say, well, okay, but but also what about who's it going to and what does that do to the velocity of money? And I, I suspect central banks just, just don't think about that. Then. And they don't even, I mean, you mentioned interest rates as a control on the level of spending. This, again, is ignorant of what Keynes pointed out in the 1930s, that it isn't your the interest rate that determines how much you're willing to invest. It's your expectations of profit that determine how much you're willing to invest. And if you think there's going to be a, like a 10% rate of return 
on your investment and you have a, a, a central bank charging three, you know, putting a three or 4% rate of interest, you're going to dive in there and borrow no matter what. And the bank can double the rate of interest and you still think you're going to come out ahead. So to actually be able to use the interest rate to control the economy, you, you can't fine tune it in the way their models talk about, which because with their models, you know the future, you know what the return is going to be on various investments. So varying the, the only way to reduce your level of investment is to reduce the net present value of those investment returns over time. And that can be easily done by manipulating the interest rate. Now, in the real world, where your expectations are of capital gain, and this is again something Keynes covered beautifully in his 1937 papers, uh, if you expect a capital gain that's going to double your money, you can forget about controlling people's spending on that basis using the interest rate. You'll never put the interest rate up to 50%. But if people expect a 50% gain, they'll dive in there and borrow no matter what. Uh, and you only bring that to an end by, by, by crushing the entire economy with interest well, rates. It's not a fine tune well, the people, are pe- and they're leaving out expectations. Yes, I take your point. If you're investing in and getting a good capital gain, you don't care. If you are uh, a, a low income and uh, struggling on a mortgage, then you will feel it. So it's it's actually make, It'll wipe you making out, the yeah. situation yeah. worse. So this velocity of money, which has been slowing right down, um, uh, you know, before the pandemic, it was it was it was slowing down. In the US, for example, it was two point four at the turn of this century, around two thousand, got steadily down to one point nine before the the pandemic. So, I mean, you have to with that sort of slowdown because that's what that, that you know that's like twenty percent. If you had no increase in money supply. That would mean the size of the economy had shrunk by that much. So you need to, if we've got a slowing down velocity of money, then we do need to increase the, um, uh, the, the amount of money that's, that's in circulation to compensate. Otherwise, we'll see a, a, a recession or a big slowdown in the economy. Yeah, and, and, and that is the, when that's governments where we are. get it in their heads, they should run surpluses. That, that adds to the problem because that means the only other way to get the money is to get into more debt. And once you start reaching the, you know, the astronomical levels of private debt we're carrying these days, people's willingness to do that is also quite low. So what you get is a slowdown in credit growth as well as a slowdown in deficit-funded growth. And yet we are seeing money increase. So it must be the well, banks of the deficits, giving, yeah. giving loans. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of the scale, uh, the deficit in America was, what, about 35% of GDP, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it, massive amount. So let me give you figures in the UK because the, the amount – well, not in terms of the deficit, but in the amount of money in circulation, which obviously relates back to it. It's increased from three quarters of a trillion in 2000 to about three trillion today. So that's a fourfold increase in the um, amount of pounds in circulation. I could say that's great because that means more loans are out there. So that obviously means a a more confident economy. I mean, you know, if you want to look at the glass half full approach. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) uh, what what it actually is is a... I mean, I'd actually be interested in what's happened mm. in the last two years. Do you have the change well, over well, the last one or two years? Funnily enough, I do. So <laughs> before the pandemic, the M2 money supply uh, in the UK was about £2.8 trillion. Pounds. Now it's getting up to £3 trillion. So that uh, doesn't sound like a huge increase, but until you put it, it's actually expanded by £200 billion during the pandemic so far. And uh, look, it's been going up quite a bit over the last few months as well, hasn't uh, even though you'd think government spending was easing a bit, it's, it's still going up. And so a couple of questions on that. Seeing this big increase during the pandemic, presumably a, a big chunk of that is coming from uh, from government overspending rather than from from straight uh, commercial bank loans. 
is there a danger? Is there a point at which that becomes a? Because you know, obviously, they, everyone is looking at that now. You know, conventional economists are looking at that and saying, "Ah, oh, that's why we've got inflation." You know, supply chains as well. But you know, it's the fact that, that there's so much money in circulation now as well, uh, driven by all this government debt. I mean, have they got a point? Is there a point at which you can have the circulation, the the the, the money supply, not the circulation, but the the, the the actual supply of money increasing too fast? Um, you can. Um but our problem really has been for the last 20 years increasing it's been increasing too slowly and when, when it's been increasing it's been coming from private debt creation rather than from government spending which then leads down to that uh, dilemma I spoke about earlier of people spending more slowly to try to be able to reservice service their debt so you get a declining efficiency of the circulation of money um, what I'd prefer to see is, is the deficits being run and the deficits creating that money and then people don't uh, don't have a per- private debt burden for their spending, so they continue spending at the at their sort of pre at a pre crisis rate. So that's what that's what you need. But um, the, the trouble you know, is that we've handled pretty much handled handed money creation completely over to the private sector. And like when the private sector creates a debt, um, then that remains on the assets of the banking sector. Uh, it can might be bundled up and sold to a to a to a non to a non bank financial institution. Um, when they do some securitization, but it's still remaining on the finance, on, on the balance, the asset side of the financial sector. Uh, when the government sells bonds after it has created reserves by running a deficit, then the banks own those bonds. And one thing they can do is sell those bonds to non-bank financial institutions and sometimes the public. And when they do that, that, that reverses the money creation that's occurred beforehand. Uh, which means that you undermine the government's capacity to create money by letting banks sell bonds to the private sector. And what I think so it goes back. To, it goes back to the only way you're expanding money is through uh, is, is through the commercial finance sector rather than by the government. In the, if if that's what's happening, yeah. But, but that's what 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 happens now because obviously we've got central banks buying a lot of those bonds. So is this is that that's not destroying the money when that happens? No, that's, that's not destroying just, the money. No, and this is and nor is yeah. it, nor is it creating the money. But if if the central banks buy the bonds, then the bank the bonds can't be sold by the private banks to the non bank financial institutions or to the non bank uh, non financial sector public. Um, so that actually means that the, the money created by the government actually remains, and that is possibly what's happened this time round. That if you have larger central bank purchases of government bonds, then more of the money that the government has created remains in the private sector, and that boosts economic activity. So the, the I'm actually in favour of central banks buying those bonds right now, because if they do, it means that the banking sector can't destroy the money created by the government by on-selling the bonds. Right. That makes perfect sense. But if we've got this uh, from 2000 to today, this fourfold increase in the, in the amount of pounds in circulation, and we think almost all of that is going to be coming from uh, uh, commercial banks giving loans. So there's a heck of a lot of loans that they've been issuing over those over those years. If you would, if they were to carry on at that level, but we were also to say that uh, the governments were going to be uh, expanding at the same amount, then we would have too, just too much money floating in the market, wouldn't we? So we'd, we'd almost need to say, well, okay, if governments are overspending uh, and uh, and adding to the amount of money in circulation, we need a way of making sure commercial banks don't do it quite so much. Well, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call it overspending. It'd be I want the government to run a fairly permanent deficit to be able to create the money supply that enables the private sector. Well, let's to okay. Grow. Let's not call it overspending. I take your point. Overspending is not the right word, but okay. So yeah. government. So the government is Spending creating more money. Than if, they if, get back if, in yeah, if the yeah. if the government creates money and we've got commercial <laughs> banks creating money, let's keep it as simple as that. 
couldn't mm. we just have too much money? If the government is, is creating quite a lot, then don't we need commercial banks to spend quite a bit less or create quite well, a this, bit less? But this, this seems to be what happens uh, in a natural sense because the reason you borrow money is because you haven't got anything to begin with and you want to do something with money. Uh, now, mm. if you have a government running a, a substantial deficit, and this was the case in the 50s and 60s, then the money is already in your account. You don't need to borrow as much. You can finance more of what you do, want to do from cash flow. Uh, and, and that reduces the need for private sector borrowing. Uh, when the government decides to run a surplus and, and cuts off that increase, then the only way you're going to increase your money is by borrowing from a bank. But when you borrow from a bank, of course, your net assets don't change at all. Your, your assets go up and your, liabil your, your liability, the debts of the bank go up by precisely as much. And I think this actually ends up being a major encourager of speculation because then when you look at it, you think, oh, how can I, you know, my, my assets have gone up, my liability has gone up just as much. How can I make my assets go up more? I know. I'll buy shares or buy houses. Yeah, well, I wonder how that's, how that's going to stop that and happening, then, though. If you've got, <clears throat> so the government is putting money into people's bank accounts and it's not going to, unless we've got a universal basic income, and we can talk about that in a second. But if it's just government's overspending on projects which are finding its way into uh, into the bank accounts of businesses, and then that gets passed down to those businesses and employees. So, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, everyone would see a bit more money in their bank accounts from that from that government spending. But that's not going to stop those people going to their bank and saying, oh, I've got a bit more money than I used to, therefore I can get a, a, a bigger loan for, for, for a bigger house. Well, probably not a bigger I'm, house, same, same sure. sized I'm, house, but paying more for it. I've got a feeling it does lead to that. I mean, if, if, when, when this is looking at um, economic history uh, during the 1920s. You had the um, um, what's his name? The I can't think of the, the, prime, the president of the states right now. Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge government running. A, he was very much an accountant in the way he approached everything, but an accountant who knows how household finances, not government finances. And he was ensuring that every year this, the surplus is one percent of GDP. And they had a booming economy and he was taking credit and saying the boom is, you know, my, my surplus is causing the boom. What was actually causing the boom is while he was paying down government debt by 1% of GDP per year, the private sector was increasing private sector debt by 5% of GDP per year. And that was all going into the roaring 20s and the booming stock market. And it was the increasing money coming in that actually was causing the, the stock market to boom. Now, when, when you got to the point where that stopped, the whole thing crashed and we had the Great Depression. Um, so I think a, a major reason why people did borrow so much, uh, not, not, not the only one, it could well be a reaction to the Spanish flu. We're now learning what it's like to live under a, a pandemic. So we can understand people wanting to, you know, invent the Charleston after an experience like the, like the um, Spanish flu. But in that situation where the government's taking money out of circulation, the only way to get it back in is to borrow. And then when you borrow, you don't have any net increase in your assets. So you go and think, well, how can I buy assets and you know, benefit from a rising market and the borrowing and the buying of assets causes the rising market and you get a positive feedback loop or amplifying feedback loop that leads, leads to catastrophe uh, ultimately. And ultimately it was, of course, October... Or was mm. October 21 or October 19, 1929? I, uh, I, I wasn't around then, Steve. <laughs> the government's deficits, you were saying, it wouldn't stop people going and borrowing as well. I think they do. And, and then this is my saying, when the government runs a surplus, it certainly seems to lead to people borrowing money. And the same thing applied during the Clinton era. We had Clinton, you know, again, running a similar surplus, 1% of an average of GDP. It was actually rose to, I think, about 2 or 3% at one point. Uh, but that was the beginning of, that was during the middle of the uh, the dot-com 
and the internet bubble, and then followed by the uh, the subprime bubble. So you just you had an orgy of speculation, uh, and that then meant the economy looked like it was going great until the orgy stopped. Yeah, hate it when that happens. But aren't we at that situation now? In that we've we've had a, a heap of government money, uh, which obviously has added to the money supply. Mm. But we are also seeing uh, house prices going crazy all around the world as well, as though people are still going and getting loans and uh, you know and getting mortgages. Yeah, and I think I think this this is turning up late in the data, but I think that's what's going on. I think we uh, a combination of things. I mean, partly when you have more cash flow, then you have you know you're closer to having a deposit. But you know, having a deposit for like a house in Australia is out of the question unless you go to the house to the bank of mum and dad. Um, so it fundamentally is people borrowing money and getting caught up in speculation once more and the borrowing the, the, the borrowing you know, money and then using that as your payment to buy a house uh, is what causes the house price to rise. So you get a positive feedback and amplifying feedback again between increase in the rate of borrowing and the change in house prices. And that goes, goes on until the whole thing comes crashing down when the increase in prices so much that it discourages new entrants. So, does, um, so we're, doesn't that mean yeah. then that, you know, whereas we might normally get a, a situation where, look, if there's being money created by the government, there'd probably be less created by the banks. If uh, if there's more money being created by the banks, perhaps that's, that's a sign that times are good. Uh, so there needs to be less money created by, by the government. And yet here we are. It looks like we've got both going at it, hammer and tongs at the same time. Yeah, and it uh, sounds dangerous to me, as though we, you know, that that we could we could end up with well, you know, what we're seeing a massive increase in the in the money supply. And I guess my question is, is that dangerous? I think it's dangerous when it ends up inflating asset prices. Um, and also, uh, part of the danger is that people will, will will spend more on consumer items as well. And you, you can't spend on travel these days. There's, there's going to be a lot of shuffling of what. Um, expenditure is as well and you can't go to restaurants um, so that's likely to mean an increase in demand for, for commodities uh, just from that shuffle alone I mean if you if you take a look at if, if you if you look at the entire expenditure including travel and compared that I think you get a lower figure than just looking at consumption items alone but if you look at the consumption items of course there's an increase in, in demand um, given that reallocation effect of, of the budget during the, the lockdown uh, and then you have the supply chain disruption coming at the same time. So you get a double mm. whammy on basic consumer prices. And isn't there a danger as well now that we get central banks? The moment the central banks start saying, well, okay, we're going to reduce our balance sheet. In other words, we're going to, we're going to stop buying bonds. Uh, that's the first thing. And then they're going to start selling the bonds that they're holding, bringing down their balance sheet. The moment they do – I mean, when they say we're going to stop buying bonds, then they are – well, I guess – may not have any immediate impact on the money supply, but the moment they start to say we're going to bring down our balance sheet, in other words, we're going to take the bonds that we hold and we're going to start selling them on the open market, then they are destroying the money supply. So this big peak that we're seeing, and we've never seen the money supply really go down. It's always gone up. I wonder whether this could be the first time, actually, that we actually see as they start to wind down their balance sheets and perhaps you know people start borrowing less from, from banks because times aren't looking quite so confident. Um, that we actually start to see the money supply shrink. And when that happens, what does that do to the economy? That sounds like it could be quite a drastic well, that, uh, adjustment. That's based, that actually has happened before. It happened between 1929 and 1933 in America. Well, the money supply fell yeah, that, they weren't good days. And that wasn't, that, wasn't a, that wasn't a particularly hot time to be alive. So, yeah, it is dangerous that that, that becomes, uh, you know, the, uh, the dominant phenomenon. And um, there's... 
some prospect of expecting that in the current circumstances. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's guaranteed, but it's quite a danger. But is it a danger? So the central banks are playing on dangerous ground. Would they be? I mean, and is that what happened with the uh, with with the Great Depression? Was it was that part and parcel of it? Was it was it was it the amount of money that was being created by governments and the the actions of the central banks as to how they handled it? Is that an echo of what we're seeing now? No, that's that's um, what we. If you if you look at uh, Friedman and Bernanke, they try to blame it all on the Federal Reserve. Um, but the, taking a good look at the data, the, the Federal Reserve is being reactive. Uh, but the real problem was that the private sector was trying to pay its desperately trying to pay its debt down, and when it paid a debt down, it reduced the money supply, and that led to a fall in the both in the, the, the you know a, a straight fall in, in in monetary income that way, and then doubled up with people's with a fall in the velocity of circulation of money, uh, and that's this is what I call Fisher's paradox because Irving Fisher having got the 1920s completely wrong. In believing that it would lead to an ongoing boom into the 1930s, he developed the the debt deflation theory of Great Depressions, and an essential part of that was that when people repay the debt, you actually find that the debt ratio can rise. And he said the more debtors pay, the more they owe. That's why I call it uh, Fisher's paradox. So you have people trying to reduce their their debt, and which they manage to do. Uh, so, so their debt level falls, but by reducing debt, you also reduce money. And by reducing money, you reduce GDP. Uh, so the debt ratio can rise even when people are paying their debt down. And this is what Fisher, I call Fisher's paradox. And we could see we could see a version of that in the aftermath the, to this boom in the middle of the crisis. Uh, if if we start foreseeing you know, reluctance to buy houses coming out of the increase in debt necessary to get into the game, and then you have people. Uh, Realize, I think, oh, I can't afford this debt. I've got to, I've got to liquidate. When they liquidate, they cause cause the GDP to fall as well, and you have a rising debt ratio, even though you have a falling level of debt. And that did have empirically in America between 1929 and 1932, the debt ratio was rising as the level of debt was falling. But we could also, you know, get the central banks contributing to this as well. You'd hope that they'd realise their mistake and turn around quickly. But if they start to wind down their balance sheet and they start selling off the bonds that they're holding, then that's destroyed money. And also you've got, like the Bank of England is saying that uh, next year, not only uh, do they they expecting that they're not going to be... uh, Buying up more bonds, so they are, they do want to start uh, start selling it off, uh, and 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 also the government is there saying you know we don't want to reissue bonds as well. We want to start reducing our debt by not uh, by by not reissuing to cover old debt. So they're expanding to you know expend, expect. So you got on the one side you have got the government saying well, we're going to spend less, and on the other side you've got the central bank saying oh well you know the, the money that we're holding we're going to we're going to pass that off to. Uh, uh, to, to the private sector, so it seems like they're going all out to try and reduce the money supplies. Though that's a good thing in these circumstances. Well, or, or, or disastrous if it causes the private sector to do the same thing, and yeah. you have a depression collapse. Uh, it is in, incredibly volatile times, and, and the wrong decision at the wrong time uh, can can trigger uh, a decline. Even though you largely blame the private sector's dynamics for causing it, the government can set that in train. And you have confidence in the bank. You've talked well about the Bank of England before, but you must be looking and thinking. Hang on a second. This all seems a bit strange. I mean, for example, well, the funny, one of the, one, <laughs> like one of lifting the interest rates, all, for example, this week. Yes, I know, I know. So one of the funny things is there's a huge divide between the research staff and the 
Monetary Policy Committee. So very Danny Blanchflower on Twitter. He's, he's, he's scathing about the people in the Monetary Policy Committee, and he was one of them for a while, and always dissenting, and then being rubbished by the rest of them, including Mervyn King. Uh, and then the crisis occurred, and oh dear, uh, we didn't see that coming, did we? He said, Danny, Danny said, well, I bloody well did, and you ignored me. And he's still having the same reaction to them now. So the, the people who got onto the Monetary Policy Committee don't aren't, aren't necessarily informed by the research staff in the bank. And then the bank itself has some research staff who are gung-ho about heterodox economics. They're building, uh, you know, stock flow consistent, Mark Lavoie, godly uh, models of the economy and, and having the role of money in there. And I hope some are using the sort of my Minsky approach as well. But you've also got the diehard dynamic stochastic general equilibrium types in there too. So it, it, it's it's... It's better than most of the other central banks, but it's still you know, confused by a lot of bad ideas, and most of the bad ideas come from the Monetary Policy Committee. And out of the two tools that they're using to, to you know, to, to large extent, uh, interest rates, which obviously has always been the, the the key tool for central banks, and then this holding of uh, this holding of bonds, keeping them away from uh, from the open market, which one is most effective? It seems like the you know from what you're saying earlier, interest rates probably have, have lost a bit of their power lately. Yeah, well, if, if you wanted to uh, take money out of the economy, like slow it by taking money out of the economy, you'd sell bonds to the uh, non-bank financial institutions and to the, uh, the non-bank public. Um, so you, 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 and that would have you know, more of a direct influence by changing the quantity of money. Uh, than by trying trying to change the price of yeah. money. Yeah, and by changing the price of money, as we've said, you're hitting the small guy rather than the big guy. The big guy's not going to change his behaviour in any way whatsoever. So, mm. yeah, you begin to. So, I mean, that's fundamental question: <laughs> Do interest rates really work? You know, is it is it an old tool? Is it a blunt tool, a blunt instrument? Well, it's, you know, that's Minsky would describe it as a blunt tool because the only way it works is if you bludgeon the economy. You can't find churn with interest rates because the main determinant of your desire to invest or speculate is not interest rate per se, it's your expectations of gain. So only by whacking up the interest rate to the stage where it crushes those expectations or it causes bankruptcies for those who can't finance it out of their debt out of cash flow, then you have an impact with interest rates. And that, you know, is what we tend to see. It's 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 not a it's not an accelerator. Uh, it's a handbrake. So this is an interesting point, then, isn't it? Because you know, there's a there's the the question mark over is the whole issue. If if you look at modern monetary theory and the idea that governments should be able to create as much money as they need to create full employment, you know, the natural progression of that is to say, well, why why don't they just run? And we've talked about this. Why don't they just run a deficit with the uh, uh, with the central bank? Why do they need to go through this whole bond issuance exercise? <laughs> but I think we've just described why because it gives it gives that ability for the central bank to fine tune how much uh, money there is circulating in the in the economy we wouldn't be able to do that if 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 they if they actually i mean i i have bought bonds myself uh, state bonds directly off the state government so you can do it but generally speaking it's people buy and sell their bonds through the financial sector Uh, and that means it's not the government that's controlling the capacity of bonds to soak up additional excess demand in an economy it's the private banks and uh (laughs) Uh, it's bad enough having the control of the private banking sector, letting them control money supplies control uh, by by controlling bond sales. I think is is another no, but very it, bad but, idea. No, yeah, for sure. But if it, if the central bank is there uh, and the central bank is responsible for you know managing the managing the economy and managing the supply of money in the in the economy, 
if if we're seeing interest rates as a as a blunt instrument for doing that, the only way they're really controlling that is how many bonds they're buying up or bonds they're pushing back. That's the fine tuning instrument. They can't do that if the government isn't issuing those bonds in the first place, if government debt isn't transferred into bonds. So that becomes a good reason to go down that road of governments issuing bonds rather than just saying, oh, we'll just we'll just run a, run a deficit with the Bank of England. Yeah, um, the, the bonds play in a, a productive role uh, in, in manipulating the amount of money in creation, and the government should actually make more use of that uh, than they do. Uh, but the trouble is it's, it's mainly selling those bonds to the uh, financial sector rather than to, well, first of all, to the primary dealers and then to the rest of the financial sector, uh, rather than selling it to the public. So quantitative easing does have its place, doesn't it? It does in, in one sense, but what it's all it's done, I think, is indirectly help inflate the, uh, the stock market because when you do that QE, uh, when you buy the bonds off a non-bank financial institution like a pension fund or an insurance company or a superannuation firm, uh, then the they get money yeah. which they, they can only use to buy financial assets. So you get... You get Ends up you bought your uh, your program of buying bonds and therefore you know put, creating money by putting money into the hand of the non-bank financial sector uh, ends up causing asset bubbles. Yeah, so you need more government bonds. You need governments <laughs> to get even more uh-huh. into debt so they can't do that, so that they hold some and the central bank holds some. Anyway, uh, look, this is a complex picture, isn't it? Absolutely. I think we've just shown how complex the, the whole financial system is. But I think we made some headway there. Good to talk, Steve. Catch you again next week. You know. Thanks, Matt. And uh, next time, we look at government subsidies, government handouts. What better to look at uh, during the week of Christmas? We're all happily giving. Should governments be giving more too? And if so, how do they pick which companies or industries to subsidise? Aren't governments notoriously bad at picking winners? And isn't there a degree that any moves they make can have unintended consequences elsewhere so can we simplify the way governments support industry that's next time on the debunking economics podcast with professor steve keen i'm phil dobby see you next week a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.